0: Several years ago, the book Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand came out. It was a a New York Times bestseller, and it was made into a very successful film. Unbroken tells the true and amazing story of a man named Louis Zamperini, who was not only an Olympic level runner, but he was also an incredible survivor. Louis Zamperini survived when his B-24 Liberator crashed into the Pacific Ocean during World War II. He survived drifting at sea for 47 days in a lifeboat. And most amazingly of all, he survived after enduring two agonizing years in two different POW camps where he was tortured and beaten by Japanese military personnel, specifically by one maniacal guard who the soldiers nicknamed the bird. And even after Zamperini was liberated, even after he returned home as a war hero, he was utterly consumed and ensnared in another war, namely a war of inexhaustible hatred for his enemy. This morning we are continuing in our studies of the gospel according to Luke. And so if you have a Bible, please open up to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 30. Six. This morning, Jesus continues in his sermon on the plain where he is defining for us what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus in this sermon is clarifying for the crowds what true discipleship looks like. Just as he did in his Beatitudes earlier, Jesus in our passage prepares his followers to meet intense hostility from the world. If you will follow Christ, you will be greeted by the world with hostility and rejection and mockery and hatred, just like he did. In other words, If you if you're a disciple of Christ's, you will face enemies. How must we respond to our enemies as followers of Jesus? This is what Jesus says. Verse 27, but I say to you who hear love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those Who abuse you to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. In this passage, we come face to face with perhaps the most difficult command Jesus ever gave. Love your enemies, not like the world loves, but like God loves you. That sentence is my best effort at summarizing the whole passage. Here it is again. Love your enemies. That's verses 27 to 31. Love your enemies. Not like the world loves, verses 32 to 34. But like God loves you, verses 35 to 36. And that sentence is going to serve as the outline as we walk through this passage verse by verse. And so my prayer, my prayer to God is that we would know the unsurpassable love of God in Christ that we would be empowered by his spirit to do the impossible to love the unlovable number one love your enemies verses 27 to 31 love your enemies the heart of Jesus' sermon on the plain is a call to love It's a call to love our enemies. If you look right there in verse 27, right there in verse 27, he says, love your enemies. Do you see that? Everything else in this passage, brothers and sisters, undergirds, explains, and illustrates that main central truth. Love your enemies is the main point of this sermon. It's the main point of Jesus's uh, of this portion of Jesus's sermon and everything else undergirds and explains this kind of radical, otherworldly kind of love. Jesus is calling us to love those who are unlovable. Now, Jesus begins by telling us whom to love, namely our enemies. And, and even when we hear that, love your enemies, it, it, it sounds in our ears, even as followers of Christ, so utterly countercultural. It, it, it uh, just by the face of it, it flies into the face of what we understand. Our natural instincts tell us to do. Because of our fallen human nature, we're inclined to hate those who hate us. Loving the unlovable does not come naturally to us. We tend to love those who love us back. Now, it's hard enough to love our neighbors, right? Even literally your neighbors, not just generally those who are made in God's image, but just your, your next door neighbors may be very unlovable, right? Our, the first interaction, the day we were moving into our home four years ago, our kids, as we're unboxing, our kids were just riding their bikes and scooters in the neighborhood. And within like five minutes of us pulling the moving truck in, one of our next door neighbors was yelling, at our kids to get out of his driveway. It was like, welcome to the neighborhood. Right? And maybe you've had that kind of experience. You have neighbors that are hard to love. And yet Jesus is saying, love your enemies. This seems upside down. This seems backwards, but Jesus, as we've seen in this sermon so far is not interested in seeker friendly recruitment. He's not interested in cheap grace. Jesus, Is calling his followers to be marked off from the world that's what a disciple of Christ is is someone who's called to live a life that is otherworldly whose values whose whose frame of reference is not tethered simply to the systems and values of this world So we're called by Christ to endure hardship and humiliation for his sake as we walk this path of love. So one commentator put it like this. Jesus encourages in these verses weakness in face of hostility, vulnerability in the face of opposition, generosity in the face of need and readiness even to lose our possessions. Jesus widens the scope of our love to include not only your spouse, not only your children, not only your mom and dad and your family, not only your close neighbors, but even those who are your enemies. Now, I want you to notice a few things. We're going to look at some of the specifics. Excuse me. I haven't preached in a while, so I got to get this out. Specifics. There it is. I want you to notice something striking about what Jesus says about love. In verse, in the first five verses, did you notice the number of commands? There are nine commands, nine calls to action in the first five verses. So after contrasting the woes that he's just given, he calls his disciples to love your enemies. But but when Jesus says love, he doesn't think primarily in terms of feelings only. If um, if I were to ask any of you, perhaps even someone on the street, what is love? How would you answer that question? What is love? You might have a description of love that is confined to emotions. Love is an emotional feeling. It's what you feel deep down in your heart. It's a sense of desire. It's an intense affection. Some might describe it as a sexual desire. That's what love is. But Jesus, in this passage, actually gives us a vision of love that takes concrete actions towards those who are enemies. Jesus isn't mainly in this passage commanding you to like your enemies. He's calling you to love them in practical ways. So, for example, for example, just listen. How how are we supposed to love our uh, love our enemies in practice? Look what he says. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, your Bible may not say abuse. It may say mistreat, which is a better rendering. Uh, revile, malign, those who disparage you. That's what he means by abuse. Verse 29, to those who strike you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Do you you hear that? Jesus' vision for love has actions behind it. So if you were to ask Jesus from this verse, what is love? He would say love does good love, blesses love, speaks love, prays. love, gives love acts. Jesus is describing in the most extreme terms, the kind of attitude followers of his are to have towards those who are the most unlovable. Jesus is saying, don't, don't seek revenge. Don't take vengeance. Don't retaliate in kind. Be ready to pray. Be ready to serve. Be ready to give. Be ready to bless those who are your enemies. And if you want to know just a one verse summary of what he's saying, look at verse 31. Now, children, you probably have memorized this verse. This is the, the golden rule. Look at verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you do so to them so love puts us in the place of our enemies and helps us to think and imagine what would we want if we were in their shoes and then do accordingly jesus doesn't say give them what they deserve jesus says Do for them what you would want done for yourself. Now, do you hear how radical this is? So in Jesus's day, one of the most popular rabbis had a saying that went like this. Quote, what is hateful to do, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. In other words, what you don't want to be done to you, don't do to your neighbor. Do you hear that? Jesus turns this command in a positive form. And Jesus says it's not enough to just abstain from doing harm to your neighbor or abstain from doing evil to your enemy. Jesus positively calls us to do that which is good, to bless them, to actively pursue, to do good to those who hate us. Jesus is saying, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now I wanna make two brief pastoral observations. As we, as we continue to drill in and understand what does it mean to, to love this way and to love not like the world loves, I wanna make two observations pastorally to clarify some, something that Jesus is saying. First, in this passage, Jesus is not teaching pacifism. Jesus is speaking not to the level of nation states and how they interact, but individuals, how we interact on a personal basis. Now, if you want a wise and discerning understanding of just war theory from an Augustinian perspective, there's someone who in our, who's in our church who's written a book on this. You can see Dr. Paul Miller after the service. You can ask him all your questions about just war. Jesus is speaking on the level of the individual. Jesus is speaking And he says, love your enemies. He's calling us on a personal level to bless those who hate us. Second observation, when Jesus says to love our enemies and to pray for those who abuse us, uh, again, who malign or mistreat us, this does not mean that if you right now find yourself in a situation where you're facing the threat of abuse, whether that's physical or verbal or emotional, whether it is sexual, whatever whatever kind of abuse, Jesus isn't saying that all you're supposed to do is just pray for your perpetrator. You can pray for your perpetrator, but let me encourage you, just as one of the shepherds of this church, to seek help, to, to tell someone what you're going through to tell to tell a pastor, to tell an elder, to tell one of our wives, to tell a fellow church member, to tell a friend. Seek to trust someone that can help because we want to help. So who are the enemies that Jesus has in mind? When Jesus says, love your enemies, how would, his, how would that crowd, we'll know from earlier in the sermon, the crowd had come from the south all the way down in Judea. They'd come from the north up in Tyre and Sidon. So a massive amount of Jews had come to hear Jesus preach and to receive healing at His hands. When they heard the phrase, love your enemies, what would they have heard? Well, in Jesus' day, the enemy of the Jews would have been synonymous to be the Romans. When Jesus says, love your enemies, they probably would have heard, oh, the pagan Gentiles who are occupying our land, who are oppressing us, you're calling us to love them. And again, it's not, I think this is a fair interpretation. It's not surprising to me. Right after this sermon is over, right after Jesus has called his hearers to love their enemies, the very next passage that we read, we find someone whose faith is commended who is a Roman centurion. Fascinating. But let me ask you, who are your enemies? Right now, Jesus assumes if you're following Christ, you have enemies in this world. Who are your enemies? Now, you may be thinking, I don't have any enemies. Everybody loves me. Well, Jesus assumes if you believe his teaching and you uphold the scriptures as your final rule and authority, what you believe to be true will be hated by the world. So for example, um, in our neighborhood, 90% of the houses in our neighborhood have these signs that you put in the ground that are multicolored. Maybe you've seen them and they have different statements that are really kind of like mantras of the day. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And one of my friend... um, and this isn't a, uh, an encouragement to get a sign like this. But a friend of mine, he made a sign or he, he got one made. Same, same look and feel, same font, same colors, everything. And it just says the Apostles Creed on it. And he put that in his front yard. Which I'm not saying that's a necessarily a good, good, good way of doing it. But here, here's my point. You may have even neighbors around you that you have a good relationship with. But if they actually knew what you believed, they might hate you. I think that's fair, isn't it? In this context, Jesus is a connecting, following him faithfully by being reviled and rejected by the world. So look at your Bibles. Do you see the way our our passage begins with, but I say to you, do you see that? He's going back and addressing his disciples. Now look at what he had just said earlier at the last beatitude. Look what he had said in verse 22. Blessed are you when people what? So you have to wake up. Hate. Hate, There you go. Let's try that again. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil. Notice this last phrase on account of the son of man. In other words, Jesus is defining enemies as those who mistreat us And exclude us and revile us because we follow Christ. Now, I imagine all of us in this room have probably made enemies of people by our own sinful actions. We've made enemies not because of our faith in Christ, but because we're sinners. We've sinned against others. We've caused a rift. And so as Christians, we ought to try to seek reconciliation. We ought to admit our sin And seek to be reconciled as far as it depends on us. We're to live peaceably with all. But what Jesus is doing in this opening command, he's calling us, brothers and sisters, to live and to love in a way that is otherworldly. A way that is supernatural, a way that sets our love apart from the world. And that's what we want to look at in verses 32 to 34. Love your enemies, not not like the world loves. Look at verses 32 and 34. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? And notice this explanation. For even sinners, that is even the world, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, What benefit is that to you for even sinners do the same? And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So the key to understanding these three verses is that phrase, even sinners. So don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Do you see that? What Jesus is doing is he's saying, now I've called you to love and now I want to explain. I'm not talking about the way the world loves. I'm not talking about the way sinners love. Of course, we're all sinners. But when Jesus uses that word in Luke's gospel, he has in mind those who are far from God, those who ha- have rejected God or, or, or they're living lives utterly that are worldly. He's saying our love should look different than the way the world Loves. And he illustrates this in a couple different ways. The world teaches us to love those who love us. The world teaches us to do good to people who do good to us. Even we hear people all the time talking about karma, right? If you do good things, good things will happen to you. That's that's the way the world thinks. So if we want people to do good to us, if they do good to us, we do good back to them. But this kind of love, again, is not supernatural. It's not it's not sacrificial. It's not otherworldly. Jesus is calling us to a kind of love that's not selfish. He's calling us to a selfless love. He's calling us to a, a love that sacrifices and serves and gives and showers even the unlovable with grace and mercy and blessing rather than cursing. Now, I want to give some real specific application here. So let me put it this way. When Jesus demands that we love our enemies, he makes an assumption, namely that there are people who are hard to love. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) Do you have anybody in your life that is hard to love? If you don't, maybe you're the person who is hard to love, right? <laughs> just look in the mirror, buddy. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. He assumes, he, Jesus assumes, if, if, he would not have to command us to love our enemies if there, if there weren't people that are hard to love. And so there, people, but here's the thing, people are hard to love in different ways. You ever thought about that? Amen. Jesus calls some people our enemies which means they're against us. They're they're, they're actually opposed to what we believe. They want us to fail. And Jesus says, love them. Love them. They want you to fail. So, So think, do you have anybody in your life, anybody you know that literally opposes you and wants you to fail? Jesus says to you this morning, love them. Other people may not be personal enemies. But they just, their, their character, their personality, their condition make, uh, make them unattractive to us. It makes them even repulsive. Jesus says, be merciful to them. Show them mercy. Don't base your treatment of them by what they deserve. Other people, th- this would probably be relatives, friends. Maybe co-workers and and they've taken offense at something we've done, even something that was right that we did for them. Maybe you shared the gospel with them and they were offended. Well, if that relationship is cold or not existent anymore, Jesus is saying, hey, seek reconciliation with them. Love them that way. Maybe others. Others may not have anything against you, but they're just. Maybe you have something against them. Maybe, maybe you consider them your enemy because of something they did to you. And Jesus is calling us to love them by forgiving them. Do you remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus gives that parable of the good, what? The good Samaritan? Remember that? We often read that parable simply as an explanation of what it means to be a neighbor, right? And that is, That's a perfect example of what it means. To love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus asked the question at the end, which person in this parable proved to be a neighbor? And the answer, of course, was the one who showed mercy. But sometimes we don't pick up on the the language and the, and the, the description of the person who's the hero in the parable, namely the Samaritan. Remember from John 4, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They despised the Samaritans. They saw the Samaritans as their enemies, as half-breeds. They would travel around where the Samaritans were because they didn't want to even come in contact with them. And Jesus makes the Samaritan, the villain, the hero of the parable because he wants his hearers to understand that loving your neighbor, listen, loving your neighbor must of necessity Include loving our enemies. So let me ask you, who are your Samaritans this morning? Who do you despise? In this area, a lot of people, because they're into politics, they either they do two things. They deify the people they support and they demonize the people that are against what they believe. Who are you demonizing? Who are people made in your image who actually demonize you as a follower of Jesus that Jesus is calling you to love this morning? Who are people you despise? Who are the people you avoid? Who are the people that you find most difficult to love? We live in an age of identity politics and constant divisive public discourse. We live in an age that's saturated with expressive individualism that's fomented in the echo chamber of social media and it's coupled with mainstream networks that thrive on sound bites and tribalism and listen all of this stuff is catechizing you every second of the day you realize that you we're, were we're bombarded with this noise in our country and many of us i would say all of us are in some measure We are products of our times. And so ask yourself this morning, who am I deifying? Who am I demonizing? And the people you're demonizing, that's who Jesus is talking about this morning. They may not look like you. They may not talk like you. They may not believe the things you believe. That's whom Jesus is calling you to love. We're called to love even those who demonize us. So brothers and sisters, how must this command even shape the way that you interact with brothers and sisters in the church whom you have serious disagreements with? You can even treat brothers and sisters in Christ as your enemies. So when you're interacting with those with whom in the body of Christ that you disagree Don't demonize them. You can use really strong arguments, but you better use really soft words. Paul says, even when we correct opponents. We're to do so with gentleness. Second Timothy 225. A gentle tongue. Is a tree of life. I remember John Newton, my favorite pastor. He wrote to a young pastor who had been spending a lot of time publishing polemical works against other Christian pastors with whom he disagreed. And this is what this wise pastor said to this younger pastor. Quote, Remember the Lord loves him and bears with him just as he does with you. So you must not despise him or treat him harshly because in a little while you will meet in heaven and he will be dearer to you then than the nearest friend you have upon the earth is to you now. Don't love as the world loves, instead, love the way God loves us in Christ. That brings us to our third and final truth I want us to see. Love your enemies, not like the world loves, but like God loves you. Verses 35 to 36. As we close these last two verses, we find that Jesus grounds this otherworldly summons to love on verses 35 and 36. He grounds, he, he, he builds the foundation for this love, and he provides the fuel for this love in these closing verses. So, first, what is the fuel of our love? Look at verse 35. Jesus repeats and summarizes what he's just said. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Now, here comes the fuel. What fuel does Jesus provide to empower our love to our enemies? Well, notice those two future tense verbs. Do you see them in verse 35? The two result clauses there that he gives that are intended to motivate our love for our enemies. Here, here are the two future tense verbs. He says, first, and your reward will be great. And here's the second future tense Verb And you will be sons of the Most High. Do you see that? So let's take these two and and meditate on them for a second. So Jesus is saying, listen, he, he knows how hard this call to love is. So he wants to give you fuel. He wants to put fuel in your engine of love to be able to do this impossible task. So Jesus promises, Jesus Christ promises you this morning. That if you love your enemies the way he is calling you to, your heavenly reward will be great. When we love our enemies, we may simply receive in this world more scorn and hatred. But Jesus fixes our eyes on the world to come and says, in that world, in the world to come, your reward Will be great. You will receive eternal life. With God forever. Jesus promises. This amazing reality. For those who have been changed by his spirit. Washed in the blood of Christ. And to have that future glory held out to us. As something to strive towards by his grace. Jesus does the same thing in a few chapters in Luke 14. Listen to what he says in Luke 14, 13. Same logic. Ready? He says this When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You see that Jesus, in other words, is saying love today, love your enemies today by being motivated to look to the last day. You need to look beyond this vapor's life at the glory that is coming and let the promise of eternal life and heavenly reward motivate you to live an otherworldly life of love today. Second. Notice that Jesus promises that if you love your enemies, you will be that is you show yourself to be sons or daughters, children of the most high God. You see that? So in other words, Calvin put it like this. When we love our enemies, that is a sure mark of our adoption. I love that. Just think about that. What is he saying? He's saying, if you love your enemies this way, it evidences, it shows that you're born again, that you're a true child of God, because that's the way your father loves. You're showing yourself to be a child of God. When we love our enemies that way, we're we're, we're, as it were, putting up showing our family resemblance to the most high God. We're proving and showing that we are his children. So. What Jesus is saying is, here's the fuel. Let your identity as an adopted child of God motivate you to love your enemies, knowing that such otherworldly love points even your enemies to the lavish love of your father who's in heaven. That's the fuel. That's the fuel. I want to close by drawing your attention to the foundation what is this whole passage grounded on? What is it built upon? Now, when, when you guys came into this room this morning, you didn't probably go down to the basement to see what the foundation was. You just assume there's a foundation, right? Well, all of this passage is built on a solid foundation. What is it? Look, it's right there in the middle, middle of verse 35. Jesus grounds our love as sons of the Most High Upon the gracious and loving character of the most high God himself. This is, this is my favorite part of the passage. For, is that, see the little word for? That's how you know you're getting a ground. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Just think about that for a minute. The reason, the foundational reason that we ought to love our enemies and to do good to them and to lend to them, expecting nothing in return, is because that's precisely the way our Father in heaven loves sinners. He is kind to sinners. He's a God Who is kind to those who are ungrateful. He's a God who's merciful to those who are his enemies. Over in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expands this this way. For he makes the sunrise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, the Most High God lavishes innumerable blessings and mercies every moment of every single day on those who are his enemies. The sun rises and the rains fall and every dawn brings new mercies. Even for those who hate God, for those who don't think about God, For those who never thank God, in God, every single one of us live and move and have our being. He upholds us all by the very word of his power. We owe our existence and our sustenance to his fatherly hand. He continues every single day. We're told in the Psalms. God feels indignation every day. And yet he continues to be kind and gracious and merciful and forbearing and patient. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus wants you to know from this passage that your life is full of countless good gifts from the God who made you. All of us, all of us are born into this world with a nature that is in rebellion to God. And we prove that we are rebels by our actions. We don't love God as he deserves. We don't thank him. We're all ungrateful. And that disacknowledgement of God's goodness, I, that ingratitude is what the Bible calls Sin. We rebel against God because we're rebels. And yet, because of his mercy, he has sustained your life even to this very day. But, friend, Jesus doesn't want you to presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience towards you. He doesn't want you to fail to recognize, friend, that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You and I have orphaned ourselves because of our sin. Because of our rebellion. But by turning from your sin. Turning from your self-sufficiency. And turning to Christ, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. By receiving him in the empty hands of faith. God promises to adopt you into his family. To make you a child of God. To grant you forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and future. He promises to be a father who will receive prodigals into his arms of mercy and then celebrate with a feast. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of what you deserve, but because he's that good. Friend, trust in Christ today. The Lord says that. Heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Christian, as we've considered this otherworldly call to love our enemies, I wonder if you've pondered ever how Jesus himself has obeyed this very command. You ever thought about that? Love your enemies, Jesus said. Think about what Jesus did. He was the one who, according to Acts ten thirty eight, went around doing good. This one who did good always, who was obedient always, was crucified at the hands of sinful men, at the hands of his enemies. Some of the very ones who were putting Jesus to death were the ones he came to save. They mocked Jesus. They abused Jesus. They struck Jesus on the face. They hated him. They cursed him. And yet he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. They stripped him. They stripped him naked. And they took his tunic and his robe. And how did he respond? As he hanged dying on the cross, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Christian, when you were his enemy, the son of the most high God loved you. He loved you by dying for you on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. We love him because he loved us first. He loved us when we were his enemies, when we were unlovable. And if while we were enemies, We have been reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? How do we respond to such lavish and undeserved mercy? Mercy that is everlasting and full and free? Well, Jesus tells us how. Be merciful. Even as our father is merciful. When the movie version of Louis Zamperini's story was reviewed by the critics, there was one thing that very few of the critics even pointed out. And that was this. It was the way that the filmmaker concluded the movie by simply highlighting Zamperini's physical and emotional stamina. The the filmmaker highlighted his self-determination and his inner strength and his personal resolve, even under the most extreme of circumstances. And in the closing part of the film, there is a, 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 a glimpse, a fleeting reference to forgiveness. That's it. But when you read Laura Hillebrand's book, it concludes like this. And this is actually what I found to be the most moving part of his whole story. These are the words that Zamperini wrote in a letter to that guard, the bird. The one who tortured him for two years, quote, as a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment. My life after the war was a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate you with a vengeance under your discipline. My rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live. Post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a merciful confrontation with God, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. His love replaced the hate that I had for you, Christ himself said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. And as you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952, and I was allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamo prison. And at that moment, like the others, I forgave you. And I hope that you would also become a follower of Jesus Christ. And Hillenbrand closes with these words. Zamperini felt something that he had never felt for his captor before. With a shiver of amazement, he realized that it was compassion. And at that moment, something shifted. Inside Zamperini. It was forgiveness. Beautiful. And effortless. And complete. For Louis Zamperini. The war was finally over. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father. We thank you for the matchless mercy, for the lavish, unending love that you have given us in your son. We thank you, Father, that you have loved us when we were unlovable, that when we were weak, you demonstrated your own love towards us. For when we were sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, Father, help us to be marked off as those who love, freely and fully and lavishly, even those who are unlovable, we pray. We ask this in Jesus, our great Savior, sake. amen.